Guys, welcome. Grab a seat. Um, I'm going to get into Mark chapter 3 in a second, um, but I got something to do first. But one of the cool things that we see Jesus doing in this passage is, is establishing this new covenant family, right? And so like most of us are kind of siloed out in our little family, like micro family units today. And most of us are not sitting here saying, I am like, like really processing, like I'm, I'm worshiping with my brothers and sit like, sister, like look around the room. This is your family. These are your brothers and sisters. And so we'll see that today in this passage. And so what that means for us is a lot of things. It has a lot of implications to say like, this is your new forever family. These are your people, all of us here. It's messy. It's hard. It's difficult. Here's what it means. It means when, when one of us falls, we don't abandon that person. It means when one of us is suffering, um, we actually help share the load with that person. And it means when somebody has something to celebrate and be encouraged by, like we celebrate that. And so we have a really cool story that I want to highlight for you here this morning. Um, so we have had with us for the past couple years a transplant from Arizona. Her name is Hannah G. We're going to keep it at that, for, and, and you'll, you'll kind of understand why. So she's doing her, her, her post-undergrad, her, her doctoral work here, or her graduate work here, excuse me, and she's studying um, to become a veterinarian. And um, man, we've had a lot of conversations back and forth about this. And one of the things that I've really appreciated about Hannah's heart is she's, she's really processing beyond like kind of this upcoming thing that I'm about to announce and really like sensitively like listening to God and the spirit as, as he's working in her life and her heart. And so for now, what's happening is she is going to this summer for two and a half months. Um, we have that graphic there. She's going to um, work with Christian Veterinary Missions. And so she's doing basically kind of a short-term trip for the summer, but it's really like an exposure trip for her to um, kind of determine, is this really like kind of long-term what God is calling her to? So her desire from this is that she'll go out experience what some of this work is like. I've been a part of this before at my former context. We had a long-term missionary that we supported that did work in Uganda. And so, um, and then several veterinary students kind of go with the same organization. So I'm excited for her opportunity to do this. And really during this trip, um, she's going to gain some practical skills. She's through observation. Um, She's really going to be processing this call about what long-term cross-cultural ministry would look like for her, specifically as it relates to um, this unique kind of calling to do veterinary work, animal husbandry, into like developing countries, which is a significant thing and and really like a key way to be able to get into these countries and be able to to live out gospel truth. And so um, she's leaving soon. She's leaving in June. And so what we want to be able to do for her, I mean, she has made for the past couple of years, Hub City, her family. And so she's gotten connected into a hub community and she's connected into relationships and she's always here and worshiping with her family. And so we want to support her. And there's a lot of ways that we can do that. You can just, she's here today, by the way. Um, we're keeping her off camera a little bit because there's some things like she, we're not even disclosing the specific country that she's going to be in. She's going to be in West Africa. That's all we can say for now. And so Hannah's back here. She, you can look at her. She's raising her hand. And we want you to know who she is because we want you to do a couple things today. We want you to, to approach her. She has, if you have questions about what she's going to be doing, 
um, in this work. She certainly is here and available to answer those questions. Um, and we want you to say an encouraging word to her. You can jump alongside and pray with her. Um, so we want to support her in all those things. And she still has a little bit of a margin to make up in the finances for this. So still in total, um, her total needs are about $5,000. And so what the, one of the ways that we wanted to encourage you to also be supportive of her is encourage her and pray for her is to consider if you wanted to contribute to this. Now, it's going to look a little bit different. So this is you personally deciding to support and encourage a family member as they're going out and hearing kind of this call in their life. And so um, if God leads you towards that to, to help Hannah kind of reach this goal, um, I think she leaves like June 23rd, am I right? So we're going to have Hannah back up here. We're just limiting her exposure for a couple different reasons. CVN's uh, or CVM's ministry here in the country that she's going to go to is, is a little delicate. And so we will have her up here on, I think it's the 20th, that Sunday before she leaves. And we're going to commission her out and pray for her. Um, but if you would consider supporting her financially, what you can do is you can write a check to her personally. You can just give that to her today, or we can collect that and then we'll give that to her. So if you want to put it in the black box out there, um, but make sure that you make it out to her, not to Hub City. And so this is going to go directly to her, but we do want to be supportive of her in this. Um, we're going to tell you more about this, but it really ties in today. This is what's so important for me is we said like last week, we were walking through this unique way that Jesus kind of calls out people, calls them out from the crowd and calls them to follow him, which is just simply this, like there's a pattern that I see established as Jesus is calling people to that. Um, we always get it backwards. We always call people to like a life of behavior and obedience before we actually call them to just follow Jesus. What Jesus does is he simply says, hey, would you follow me? Like just literally in some cases, stand up and walk and walk with me and follow me. Um, and then sometime after that, which is really what we'll see in this passage today, he calls people to believe. And then long after he calls people to believe in who he is and his work and trust in that, then he starts to call people to live lives of obedience. And so I really see this as Hannah living a life of obedience. She's She's taking this trip because she's sensed God's spirit. We've had many conversations about this working in her life. And, and she's on the precipice of like a major decision of obedience here. Like, is God calling me to, to, to move out of this country and go do this very specific thing? And so that's a thing to celebrate, to acknowledge, to support, and to encourage somebody in. And it's really beautiful. And, and we, as her family, we are a family today. We want to do that. So please at least encourage and be praying for her. Again, we're going to commission her and then consider whether or not God would be calling you to support her financially in this. Um, so that's, that's that for today. We'll have more information. Again, we'll have her up and send her out and commission her. But now let's get to Mark chapter 3. Um, I'm not going to have words and slides up here today. I had a crazy week. I got food poisoning. I lost like two full days. I had a wedding yesterday. I'm here. That's about all I can say. So let's just get into this. So here's what we're going to see. Mark chapter 3, and this is all throughout the Gospels, but Mark points us out specifically, and we have to pay attention to this. We've talked about, there's kind of like the rule of proportions, like what does that Gospel writer highlight and talk a lot about? Well, Mark talks a lot, and we see it today. Mark talks about the crowds, right? And so Jesus, everywhere he went up until a certain point in his ministry, he gathered a, a, a crowd. And, and Mark mentions the crowds in his Gospel like 34 times. From the beginning, Jesus always drew a crowd, and Mark shows us that, um, but he also reveals this. That wasn't actually Jesus's intention. Jesus doesn't come 
to draw a crowd. Whether it's like the crowds in our day who would simply flock to Jesus because he's a great moral example, or the crowds in Mark's gospel who were mesmerized by Jesus's miraculous healing powers, but missed what was most important about him. The reality is Jesus didn't come to build the crowd. He didn't come for the crowd. So let's just jump right into this and, and see, because this is a critical thing that happens here. It's, it's not a parallel story to, but it carries the same tone and character of John chapter 6, where Jesus really has a line of demarcation, right? And he's like, yeah, I understand that there's a crowd of people that are attracted to me, but now he calls people out of the crowd to follow him, to believe in who he is. So that's a, it's a parallel tone to John chapter 6 and what Mark does here. So let's just jump right into it and see kind of what this is all about. I'm not going to exposit every single verse. We're going to kind of move through this a little bit more thematically. Um, also, I should say this, like, this is not intentional for me to just track with like C.S. Lewis and kind of what he says about Lord, liar, lunatic, but, but he gets it from this passage. So it kind of feels like this. And I do quote C.S. Lewis. So let's just jump into it. Mark 7 through 8, uh, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. So you get the picture that there's a crowd that's following him and he's withdrawing from that crowd. He's like, I don't want to be in the midst of this crowd. And, and a great crowd, well, they followed him. So it didn't really work. From Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. The other reason that Jesus is withdrawing is because of this um, conspiratorial plot from the Pharisees and the Herodians, which is like we want to end his life. So it makes sense. So then Mark goes on to describe some geography about this great crowd, right? From Galilee, from Judea, from Jerusalem, from Idumea, from beyond the Jordan, and from Tyre, and from Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. So Jesus is drawing a crowd. So both verse 7 and 8, this marks a little bit of a unique thing in Mark's gospel here, where he now separates out and puts like a descriptor on this crowd, which he says that they are great. That's the first time he's used that of the crowd. So it's a great crowd. It's a, it's a sea of humanity that's flocking to Jesus. And Mark says that people are coming from Galilee, where Jesus is. They're coming from Judea and Jerusalem in the south. They're coming from all these different places, from north, from south, from east and west. And so we're meant to see that. But, but beyond just the geography of this, because that's important, what Mark is revealing is, so places like Jerusalem and places like Galilee, that is going to be predominantly Jewish people flocking to Jesus. But then we've got these other pockets of outlayers in the geography. And what Mark is telling us is this. Mark is telling us that it's not just Jewish people that are being drawn to Jesus. There's actually Gentiles involved in this. And that's significant for a very important reason is we're meant to see that as both Jews and Gentiles are drawn to Jesus and there's this like diverse crowd from all over, all over it begins to become the first fruits of this diverse kingdom that Jesus is building. And so it's not meant, Jesus is not meant to be solely for the Jewish people. He is the Messiah and the Savior for the entire world. And so we also have to understand that, that Mark tells us, right? Mark tells us what's drawn the crowds to Jesus. He reveals that um, in, in, in verse 8. He says that the crowd that were, were so massive and swollen to this like 
huge number that, that is actually kind of threatening. They're here because they heard what Jesus was doing, right? So these healings that, that Jesus has been performing, these miracles that we've seen Jesus do in the last few passages, in the last few weeks, they're kind of now catching up to him and not in a good way, right? And, and other gospel writers say, say this, Mark, not as much, but, but it does come out where like Jesus would do a healing and he's like, hey, don't, don't tell anybody about this. Like I'm not doing this to attract more people to myself, but it has happened. Of course, word is spreading like a man with a withered hand who was healed on the Sabbath and his hand is now fully functional or a paralyzed man that couldn't walk now is walking around. That's an important thing. So of course, the, the crowds are drawn to this and, and it's catching up to him. Um, but the crowd isn't drawn, and this is important, by, by what he's saying, but, but rather by what he's doing. They're, they're just coming primarily for like the fireworks, for the, for the spectacle of it, or, or maybe they're, they're anticipating that maybe they'll get something from it, which is understandable, right? You hear about these kinds of stories, you're probably going to show up. Or there's just the reality, like how many of you have been drawn to a crowd because there's a crowd, right? Like when we were in New Orleans a couple of years ago, like you just get street performers everywhere. And no matter what, like, I don't care about a dude sitting on a 20 foot uh, unicycle. I just don't care. I don't care what he's going to do after that. He can juggle things that are on fire. But the reality is we found ourselves standing in front of this guy because there was a huge crowd already there, right? There could have been somebody else doing something way cooler, way more important that nobody was paying attention to. But there's something about just like the crowds and of themselves, like you kind of want to see what's going on. And so it's understandable that more people would be flocking to Jesus. But now we're told that the crowd is getting so big and so massive that it's actually dangerous. It's like a, it's like a mosh pit at an anthrax con concert or like a Walmart on a Black Friday, right? So um, thank you for one of you that got the anthrax reference. And then everybody else is like, yeah, we get, we get Walmart on a Black Friday. Um, so then look at verse 9, right? He goes on, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, right? So, so his back is pressed up against the sea, right? So, so they're worried, like, lest they crush him, for he had healed so many people so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him, right? So the disciples are in the background. They're getting a boat ready because of the crowd, because his back is now to the sea, and there's nowhere for Jesus to retreat, and the crowds could crush him. I mean, it's not like Jesus could just take off and walk across the, well, I guess he could walk across the water if he needed to, but they're getting a boat ready for him, right? So, like, we're meant to see, like, this is actually, like, this is not good. Mark's tone here is that this is like an absolute circus. They've lost control of the crowd, and it's important to note Mark is not celebrating, like we would all go like, that's a success. More people means good things. Mark is not celebrating this as a success. Jesus did not celebrate this as a success. And we too, as the church, should be careful to be too wowed by the crowds, right? Listen, for me, like where I lead with my gifting as an evangelist, like with evangelism, not an evangelist, but like I lead, like God's given me the gift of evangelism, crowds, like that always is going to fire for me, right? Like I have to fight against, like I led this type of ministry for so long where the goal was like attract crowds, right? And it feels good, especially with that gifting, because you're like, yeah, the more people, the more chance I get to have them feel included in the life of Jesus and share good news with as we walk and talk and share life together. So that always 
feels good for me, but that wasn't Jesus's main point. That wasn't what he was trying to accomplish, right? Because we see that this horde, this sea of humanity that's that's, that's moving in close to Jesus, they're actually not advancing Jesus's mission at all. They're becoming more of an obstacle to it. Like being a part of the crowd has never meant what it, like what it truly means to follow Jesus. It's never been about that. There's anonymity in the crowd. There's safety in the crowd. But Jesus does not say that's what it means to follow me. Being a disciple is not about following the crowd it's about following Jesus, right? And so it may be exciting to gather a bunch of people, but in the end, the masses are not the point. So in verse 20, we'll see the crowd, they gather again, and there's, there's so many people, it says, that they, they can't even eat. It doesn't say why, maybe there wasn't enough food, or maybe it was just too chaotic, but they can't eat. Guys, this is so important, right? Drawing a crowd on its own did not signal mission accomplished for Jesus. Being attractional for the sake of getting as many people to an event as possible was never Jesus's goal. Honestly, it should not be the goal for the church either. It's kind of why we don't do events. That's not the goal. The goal is not for us to gather a large crowd to us. The goal is for us to mobilize and move out and take the gospel and take the kingdom to our city, not take it to us. And so, so, we're, so hopefully at Hub City, we're, like, we're trying to live into what Jesus lived into, right? So even though this crowd sees Jesus as this miraculous healer, this, this worker who's doing these good things, right? Or, or they see him as somebody who's going to provide, he's going to clothe us, he's going to heal us, he's going to feed us. Unfortunately, they're coming to Jesus for the wrong reason, and they really miss who Jesus is. Was Jesus a great healer? Absolutely, undeniable, and, and so much more, right? But here's the deal, you're, you're asking far too little of Jesus if you only want to see him heal or be healed. Was Jesus a great teacher? Absolutely, and so much more. And, and we're asking far too little from him if you just want Jesus for his teaching. As C.S. Lewis says, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. So soon enough, the crowds, like they're going to get frustrated, right? They're going to get bored or both. And they will, when they realize that Jesus, just like the story in John chapter 6, when they realize that, that Jesus is not giving them what they wanted, when Jesus is not meeting their agenda, the crowds will dissipate and everybody will wander off and go home. And, and it's, no, it's no different for us. Like, in fact, like, if I'm honest, COVID has been a season where the crowds have dissipated in the church. And everybody has been forced to kind of go like, am I a part of this just because there's safety in the crowd? Or am I truly following Jesus? And so, so we've, we've, seen, we've seen this, right? And what happens is, like when you take an account for that, the middle ground disappears really quickly. And you're kind of forced to go like, yeah, like why am I in this? Am I in this because I believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be is it something I've just done my whole, my whole life or am I just drawn by the crowds? And, and you're forced to make that type of decision. When it happens to us, like we begin to discover this, this, the heart of this passage. Who, who do you say Jesus is? Who, who is he to you? 
Have you been making him who you want him to be? Or have you come to accept him for who he truly is? So distinct from the crowds, Mark highlights then out of the crowds three different groups of people that we're going to kind of walk through and then their response, right? So we're going to start here. We've got the scribes. We've got Jesus's family. I don't know if you caught what they said. It was actually pretty vicious. And then Jesus's disciples, right? So we're going to look at their responses and we're going to see that those three groups of people could not be more dissimilar in their response to Jesus from each other, right? So let's look at these three groups. We're going to start with the scribes. And their little chunk is kind of in verse 22 through 30. We'll kind of give them a big chunk. There's a lot, a lot going on here, right? So let's look at this. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub and by the prince of demons. He cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then he indeed may plunder his house Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man and whatever blasphemes they utter. But whatever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So, like as soon as Jesus begins teaching, like all the way back in chapter one. Now Mark doesn't contain a lot of Jesus' teaching. You have to kind of go to these extra gospels for this. But as soon as he begins teaching, everyone who hears him begins comparing him to other teachers, right? Other rabbis, other teachers. Most commonly, Mark's going to call them the scribes, right? And they were a part of this conservative Jewish group called the Pharisees that we took a look at over the past couple of weeks. So we see this like escalating tension between Jesus and the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and specifically the scribes here. And it comes to like a tipping point in chapter two where the scribes and the Pharisees are trying to understand who Jesus is. And that have really good intentions, right? Because they're tasked with keeping kind of like this strict understanding of God's word and its interpretation. And, and so they see Jesus as a threat to that, the kind of their traditions, to kind of their understanding of what God is doing. And so they start to kind of say, like, we need to remove this guy from a scene because, because we're not sure what he's up to. So this this comes to a tipping point, to the point where we saw these very disparate groups with the Pharisees and the Herodians, who historically are two parties that would never agree upon anything. One is very fundamental, one is more liberal in their understanding of this, and so they actually, like Jesus, causes them to go so crazy that they come together and, and conspire against Jesus. And so it comes to this tipping point, right? So we see the scribes who are this fundamentalist kind of Bible teachers, but then they add their own rituals and rules on top of that, they are so quickly growing and feeling threatened with envy and, and hatred for Jesus that they, again, they conspire with their arch rivals. And so ultimately, that's why Jesus, we see him withdrawing at the beginning of the passage. He's like, okay, it's getting a little hot in here. And so I need to move away from the Pharisees and the Herodians. And so he moves away from them. And, and now here, though, in this passage, we find the scribes once again confronting Jesus and so we just have to expect that there's this brewing conflict. And, and, and what, is it, what do we see in these verses, right? Well, they basically, they attempt to kind of like dox Jesus and deplatform him, right? How? Well, they bring these like false accusations and these lies against him, 
So they accuse him uh, of being something that he's not. What is their lie? Well, they say that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebub, which is another name for Satan and a great line for a rock opera. So first, here's what we need to see. Jesus calmly refutes them in verses 23 and 26. And then he turns it into making a statement about who he is and about his lordship and his authority. So verse 27, look at this. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house, right? So in other words, Jesus is not only saying in effect, like, get, get out of here, scribes, with your like very irrational lie about casting out demons by the prince. I'm not Satan, okay? That's not who I am. That doesn't even make sense. But then he, then he adds to that, right? What, what this shows about his authority is what he adds to. He's like, I am not Satan. I actually have more authority and power than Satan, right? Jesus says, if I, if, if I broke in and, and plundered the strong man, right, I can do that because I'm, I'm stronger than Satan, right? And so we've already seen this in Mark 127, that Jesus, where he says, he, he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. So, so clearly we recognize that Jesus has authority over all of creation. So, so Jesus, we need to understand this though in this passage, Jesus is not saying that he's going to like have to duke it out on equal terms with Satan, right? They don't bring the same amount of power to the table. This isn't dualism, theologically speaking. This isn't like, don't think like the dark side versus the light side. It's not even like Floyd Mayweather fighting like the Paul brothers, like both of them at the same time, because even then there's a chance that he could lose. Jesus can't lose. There's no losing here for Jesus. He's going to win, right? So there's not even a, a slightest, if you're over the age of like 30, don't, you don't need to do any research on the Paul brothers. Just let it go, okay? I just, like everybody under the age of 30 got it and was kind of chuckling about it and everybody over. So anyways, let's just keep moving. All right, so we need to understand that, that Jesus is, is claiming his rightful authority here, right? He will bind the strong man whenever he wants, with little to no opposition. He will plunder his house whenever he desires. He will drop the mic wherever he wants to. He has all authority given to him from the Father, empowered by the Spirit. Jesus wins. If you haven't read to the end of the story, Jesus wins. You can read it 50 times. You can read it 100 times. Please read it for your whole life. You will come to the conclusion that Jesus wins every single time, right? So then, then Jesus warns the scribes, the, these liars here, right, of the danger that they're in. He's like, not only are you just lying about this, but you're in grave danger. Look at verse 28 and 30 again. He says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying, he has an unclean spirit, right? So listen, it's one thing to say that Jesus is crazy, that he's out of his mind, which his family does in verse 21, but it's a whole other thing to attribute the work of God's Holy Spirit to Satan, which is what they've done here, right? So, so to look at the work of the Spirit to be haunted by it in your rebellious heart and to turn an attribute of the work of the Spirit of God to Satan. That's a big deal. That this reveals that their heart is so calloused and so hard against the things of God that the scribes should fear 
Like Jesus is telling him, you should fear that you are on the brink of eternal ruin here, right? It's already, if not too late at this point. So, so Jesus is not necessarily declaring the scribes are already condemned, but he's giving them a very strict, stern warning here about what they're about. And, and verse 29 has been like such a confusing and unsettling verse for Christians since Jesus first uttered it some 2,000 years. How many of you have given any thought to like, what is that unforgivable sin? How many of you have wrestled with that back and forth? Like, how many of you have thought, am I doing it? Like, some of you might go like, am I doing it right now? I don't know, right? But because you hear that, like it should stop you dead in your track and freak you out a little bit. Why? Because apparently there's something a person can do that God will never forgive them for. And, and then you're just stuck being guilty of this sin for all of eternity. So, so what is it, right? Well, sometimes people wonder whether blasphemy against the Spirit or the unforgivable sin is some like horrible thing that they've said, some word that they've uttered against God, or some particularly like shameful sin committed like in a very weak moment. Listen, I don't believe that Jesus is talking about a specific thing or a specific moment of sin here, though. I, I think he's referring to like a hardness and a callousness of your heart, one that would see Jesus before you, casting out demons by the power of God, which is remarkable, right? And then lie about the Spirit of God, calling him Satan, and then have no wherewithal to seek forgiveness for that. That's what he's, I mean, that's, that's what he's talking about, right? So blasphemy against the Spirit is, is, is really kind of a hardness of heart, like incapable of repenting and turning away. It, it's, it's not that forgiveness isn't given, it's that it's not asked for. It's an unrepentant, hard heart, right? So, so listen, if you fear whether you've committed the unforgivable sin, right? How many of you fear that maybe you've committed the unforgivable sin? Listen, first ask yourself, have you ever seen Garth Brooks live? If you have, I don't know. I had to get one in, right? All right, so just check the box. But, but seriously, here, my answer is this. Like, if you worry that you have, then you probably haven't. Like, if you're still worried about it, then you probably haven't, not yet, right? Because here's the deal. People who have no longer worry about it. Their heart is so hardened to the things of God and the work of the Spirit and the call of the gospel in their life that they just don't worry about it anymore, right? Or if they ever did. But the fact that you're worrying about it, especially if it relates to like a pattern or a habit of sin in your life, you should pay attention to that. Like, don't ignore that. You should pay attention to that because that's probably the Spirit working in you, like keeping you from continuing to harden your heart through the pattern of like, and the rhythm of like a habitual sin, right? So yes, Jesus calls us out of that and wants us to repent from that, right? So, so don't despair, like don't freak out. But don't, like, if, if there's something, if, if, if there's something in your life that, that seems to be the Spirit is, like, kind of poking at and provoking, like, yes, pay attention to that. Because it's, it's the, the Spirit working in your life, doing what the Holy Spirit does, convicting you and calling you out of unrepentant sin, right? Listen, I think we hear this and we go, like, oh, there's a sin that I could commit. Like, we want to know what it is so bad. Why? Because we have this 
compulsiveness in us that we will always want to go up to like the edge of the cliff and look over, don't we? We always want to know what the boundaries are, not so much that we can, that we can stay away from the boundaries, so that we, but so that we can push as close to the boundaries as possible. So we stare at the edge of the cliff with our toes hanging over it, while there's a whole valley of flourishing and life given to us that God has said, no, I've provided everything back here for you. So like turn your back from the edge of the cliff, right? When I was at, in college at, at Corbin at Western Baptist, they had this, this, this thing, right, which was we had to sign this contract, which was like when you're in school, presently attending school, you could watch no rated R movies, right? And what happened every summer when we weren't technically in contract? Like all these Christian kids were like getting every single rated R movie that they could into their system. Hey, I didn't break the rules, right? The irony to this is that kind of the school's motto was that we don't have a list of rules, but we promote a lifestyle of righteousness. So like in their intention, they were saying, hey, don't, don't like go up to the edge of the cliff. Look at back what's here, like a lifestyle of righteousness following Jesus. So I think we need to pay attention to that when the Spirit is calling us. It's not that we go up to the edge and stay there. It's that we turn around, repent, and go like, there's a whole valley of flourishing back here. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 95. He says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts. Like, I hope that is an encouragement for you today as you consider, like, Jesus's words. Like, what is that unforgivable sin? Like, yeah, pay attention to what the Spirit's doing, but understand it's not to push the limits. It's to return to God's goodness and his provision. And so when you hear his voice, like, don't harden your hearts. Listen to it and move and turn in repentance. Hear his voice follow him into a life of freedom and flourishing. All right, here's the deal though. The, the, the main like important thing that Jesus is doing here is actually not what the blasphemy against the Spirit is or isn't. That's actually not Jesus's main point. We're supposed to pay attention here to this, to the role and the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and what dangerous thin ice it is to grieve, to dishonor, and to mistreat the Holy Spirit. So, so how does Jesus perform his miracles? Not in his humanness, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when Jesus hears the scribes say he cast out demons by the prince of demons, he responds with like a pretty harsh diss. We'll get to it. Like it's, it's kind of a horrific insult, right? So verse 30 explains this. He says, for they were saying he has this unclean spirit. So it's one thing to attack Jesus, right? The spirit can overcome that fight. Right, so the Holy Spirit is still moving and active in his role, in his ministry, right? So it's one thing to reject or attack Jesus because the Holy Spirit is still going to work in your life. But it's another thing to attack the Spirit and disregard the Spirit. Who, who is there left? Who, who is fighting for you once you reject the Spirit? That's what we're supposed to pay attention to. Like, we can attack Jesus, but when we disregard and disavow the Holy Spirit that is working actively in our lives, calling us, what Jesus is saying, like, you're, you're, you're kind of left up to your own defenses at that point, right? If you insult and grieve and make enemies with the Holy Spirit, nobody else has your back. 
And, and that's what Jesus's point here is, right? Look at what he says in, in Matthew 12, 32. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. And then on the flip side of that, right, which is meant to be an encouragement to us, that that same Spirit who empowered Jesus, church, that Spirit is given to us. That Spirit is given to us as, as a deposit for the inheritance that we will receive. And God's Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost starts this new ministry where he inhabits and dwells inside of the life of Jesus' followers. So, so God's Spirit is given to his church to empower his church, right? Jesus, in his humanity, did his work by the Spirit of God. So, so I believe, man, we so underappreciate what power is, is possible and available to the church today and through us. Like, like, in some ways, like, we look at this past year and I go, like, man, it's been difficult. And, like, I think the church is built for moments like this. We're built for moments like this because we have the Holy Spirit. Like, so we don't cower in fear, but we live and empowered by the Spirit to be the church, to bring the good news of the gospel and live out the kingdom. So the scribes say he's a liar. What does his family say about him? Well, they just straight up say, he's crazy. We think our, we think our brother, we think our son is, is crazy, right? Look at his family. Like, uh, they, I mean, it, it's understandable, right? Like, if you're honest, like, how many of you would say, like, yeah, I have a family and there's somebody in my family that's, that's crazy, right? Like, we all have somebody crazy in our family, but, but what they say specifically about him, right? It's not that what they say is hurtful, Right? They say, well, yeah, he's out of his mind, he's crazy. But it's, that it's his family. Like, that's probably what hurts even more. Like, look, look at verse 31 and 35. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they said to him and called him. Now, keep in mind, back in 21, they said he's out of his mind. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and who are my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Okay, so that's super significant. Remember again, back in 21, his family said, man, this guy is out of his mind. He's crazy, right? Which should hit closer to home than whatever the hostile leaders could, whatever insults they could sling at Jesus, whatever they could accuse him of, whatever they could say about Jesus, that hurts worse, right? When your family doesn't have your back, we all know how much that stings. That hurts more than anything. So, so this has to be harder and more hurtful opposition and rejection to take emotionally for Jesus than anything the scribes could say or do. From, from what we know of Jesus's family later on, though, eventually he wins them over, right? Despite the rejection, despite, despite like this stinging emotional pain that Jesus no doubt felt in that moment when they said, our brother's crazy, right? Of course he felt that. Um, despite all of that, Jesus presses on. Like he moves ahead because his goal and his mission we're meant to see is, is bigger than his family, right? He doesn't let his family's apprehension about who he is or their betrayal deter him from living out his father's calling. Because here's what he's doing. Jesus is remaking the world around himself. And that's going to include family. And he does this without actually dishonoring his mother. He's not being unloving to his siblings here. He says, whoever does the will of God 
he is my brother and sister and mother, right? So he kind of, you get this picture, his mother and his brothers are coming to him, and he's like, we want to see our, our brother, our son, and he's like, that's not my brother, that's not my mother, the people that I'm with right now, who's he with? He's with his disciples, he's like, this is my family, these are my people, right? So, Here's the deal. That, it's okay for that to sound a little jarring and shocking, right? It's okay to have a few questions about that. Is Jesus telling his own family that he no longer claims them as family or cares about their general well-being? Like, is he just over them? And he's like, I got to find a new family because my family is horrible, right? Here's what we need to understand. The time is coming that the Spirit will speak to his family and the gospel will call will hit their hearts and they will respond and they will submit to Jesus, their half-brother and their son, as king and savior. That, that moment will come. And Jesus will provide for them. He's not abandoning them. He will make provision for them to make sure that they're cared for after he's gone. But now in this moment, right, it's, it's a time that he, he graciously but firmly resists even his own family. He won't let his own family deter him from his mission, right? So, so God's call in him cannot be held back by their ability to understand who he is at this stage in his ministry. So Jesus is not downplaying the gift of our physical families. That's important. Families were God's design when he created and instituted marriage, but he's showing that this spiritual family that he will form is even more important and more enduring, which doesn't give us permission to just stop or quit our natural obligations and duties that we have in our homes to our extended families, right? Jesus isn't, we need to understand, Jesus isn't neglecting a wife and children here, nor should we, right? But he is resisting kind of this unholy pressure from brothers and sisters. So, so when Jesus calls us to follow him, he does say, you might have to, you might leave family, right? But he doesn't call us to dishonor them. He doesn't call us to disrespect our family. It's a call and an invitation to how seriously God means for us to take his church. We are prone to take it so lightly that the grace that fellow believers are to us, right? We, we look down on others in the church and we miss this amazing gift that, that we are not alone in our faith. Even when we may feel alone sometimes in our family, we've been given this new forever family as the church. And so we support and encourage each other and we carry each other's burdens. Like this is your forever family. So the scribes say that he's a liar. His family says he's crazy. But what does his disciples say? Well, we see that his disciples ultimately submit to him as Lord and as Savior and as King. So the disciples, finally, and we're done here real quick. This is super easy. He breaks away from the crowd, and he calls the 12 to himself, right? Who, who in a sense, in that moment, he, he, is, he is forming the beginning of his new family here. So the, the 12 is obviously a significant number in the story of God's people. If you go back to Abraham's grandson, Jacob, until God renames him Israel, he ends up having 12 sons. Those become the 12 tribes of Israel. They're named after his sons. But then what Jesus, so this is significant. So Jesus calls 12 to him that have totally different names, right? He's forming a new people of God. He's forming a new Israel here. It's just different that this Israel is going to include Gentiles also, right? So, so this is him starting radically, this new family. He's not simply modifying the old one. And, and these, 
the, the, the 12 that he calls to himself, they're not, they're not merely disciples. They've been given this special name and a very specific role. They're called apostles. So, so these will be who Jesus leaves in charge of the church. This is who Jesus, in so many ways, trusts to like write the New Testament. Um, it's significant. These are the people that Jesus is trusting to take the gospel from the epicenter of Jerusalem out to the very ends of the world. And so verse 14, he says that he appointed the apostles so that they may be with him and he might send them out to preach. So the son of God himself, this is so important, Jesus discipled people, right? Jesus asked the 12 to follow him and he discipled them. He didn't just attract large crowds and call it a day. He wasn't, he wasn't satisfied to just say like, yeah, there's thousands of people here attracted to me. He actually calls people out of the crowd to follow him. So he, he, he was very intentional investing in a few. And his main ministry for Jesus was never on the stage in the spotlight. His main ministry was on the roadways. It was in people's homes. It was in the everyday stuff of life with everyday sorts of people. Jesus brought others along with him into the down moments, right? Into the private moments, the times when he would most want to let his guard down and just relax. He invited people into those moments. They're they're with him. His apostles are with him in those moments. That's significant. It's important for us to understand, too. I said, like, and Mark is giving us a manual for what it looks like to disciple people. One of the things, I'm going to brag on my wife for a second. My wife has invested in the lives of so many young women over the years uh, doing youth ministry for as long as we did. And I only knew this paradigm of, like, what it looks like is you make an appointment, you schedule it, and you sit down for a cup of coffee or whatever with a child, and you disciple them, right? My, my wife was always going, like, I'm just going to take them, like, grocery shopping with me. I'm like, I don't think teenage girls want to go grocery shopping with you. And, and, and the more that that went on, I was like, oh my gosh, that's so brilliant. Like she is disciple. She's doing what Jesus did. She's saying like, come to me in the messy moments. Come, come follow me as I follow Jesus in the mess of life. And I got to figure out how to be a mom and a, and a working mom at that who runs a crazy business and all this stuff. Like that's what Jesus, like she's following Jesus in his method of discipleship by, by having all of these young people, these young girls just follow her and she's like showing them what it means to be a mom and a, a working mom at that and, and a wife. And, and it's just beautiful and brilliant. It's following Jesus. It's what we should do. Our discipleship should look less like a program and more like life because that's what Jesus did, right? So he appoints the 12 and when the time was right, look what he does. He sends them out to preach, right? This is so important. He's teaching us that disciples need to be learners, right? They are with him to learn, to do what he does, to teach and share in his authority. And so today, like being Jesus's disciples and having him as our Lord includes both being and going, right? It begins with being with him. It begins with being in him. It begins with resting in him and trusting him and obeying him. So discipleship begins with being. And then over time, he grows us and he pours into us and he gets us ready and he, he sends us out as representatives. Let me, let me just say this. He will send you out to represent him and to proclaim the good news of the gospel and to display the kingdom long before you think that you are equipped and ready to do that. It's what he does with the disciples, right? As the story progresses, he sends them out, like, go out and do ministry. And they're like, whoa, whoa, we're not ready for that. And he's like, yeah, you are. Trust me, right? You've, I've got your back in this. And, and so, so don't make this distinction. Like, don't sit around too long going, like, have I been long enough so now that I can go do like, Jesus is going to call you out to do both of those things at the same time, but that's what he's setting down for us here. Listen, I'm done. 
I'm just going to say this. Hub City, man, at the core of this, at the core of Jesus, restore Albany. Like first and foremost is this acknowledgement that Jesus is the one who is doing all of the heavy lifting here, right? Jesus is doing the restoring. We're not. That's not up to us. Like all things are reconciled in him. But he calls us still to join in this great mission of restoration by being a people who would boldly proclaim the gospel and joyfully display the kingdom to our city. And what does that mean, right? What it means is that he needs, a, he needs people. Like, it does not mean this. It does not mean that Jesus needs a few, like, super talented, decently attractive staff people in a church to figure out how to do this and then flawlessly execute the plan every time. That's not what Jesus needs, right? That's not what he's calling. He's not calling the church to rely on like paid professionals to figure out what this means. He's inviting a community of disciples who have committed themselves to being and doing, to, to growing in their love and commitment to King Jesus and his kingdom and his church, and their commitment to, to do that grows in the context of community, right? So you stick it out in community, even when it doesn't fit your preferences, even when community is messy, even when discipleship is hard and difficult. Jesus is not called a few professional practitioners to live out his mission of restoration. He's called a community of people, and we'll do it because we're committed to the king and his mission.